This message is presented to you by Pastor James Moore and New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information or to donate, please visit newlifekc.com. Let's read some scripture. Let's read it together, in fact. Let's put it up here. This is Acts 9, 1 through 6. Will you read it out loud with me? Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Can you remember the last misunderstanding you had with someone? You know, you said one thing, they heard something different, and the result was a mess. Can you relate? Oh, it may have turned out to be really funny when you look back on it years later. But not in that moment. No, in that moment, it was frustrating. And one of the reasons misunderstandings can be so frustrating is because they waste time and they waste energy. Now, our scripture lesson today is about a really, really dangerous misunderstanding. A young Pharisee named Saul misunderstood the nature of God. And this resulted in great sorrow and great suffering for this new community of Christians. Here's how we're introduced to Saul in Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now tell me, do we need to know anything more about Saul beyond this sentence? Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. It's not like we can read that sentence and then say, but I'm sure he's got some good qualities. I'd still like to hang out with Saul. No, no, I imagine after reading this one sentence, we would probably unfriend Saul on Facebook, block him on Twitter. Now let's remember that Saul was a member of the Pharisees, which was a religious group that advocated a strict interpretation of Old Testament law, especially the laws of purity. See, his mission in life was to protect the purity of the Jewish faith by destroying this heretical, heretical cult of Jesus' followers that was known as the, as the way. Verse 2, we just read, he went to the high priest asking for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, now this is really, truly ironic, because Saul did not see himself as a bad person at all. And the religious leaders he worked with, they didn't think so either. And there certainly was no one who thought of him as evil. See, in Saul's mind, he was a good man. 
doing good work. Obviously, God disagreed. Reminds me of what Nobel Prize winner Steven Weinberg once said. He said, with or without religion, good people can behave well and bad people can do evil. But for good people to do evil, that takes religion. Well, this is certainly, that's a disturbing thought, don't you think? For good people to do evil, that takes religion. Well, it's certainly in, true in Saul's case. He truly believed he was doing God's work by persecuting those who followed Jesus. How sad. This well-educated, passionate religious leader with a desire to please God had somehow believed a lie. I don't know about you, but I want to make sure I never fall in that kind of trap. So we just read the story. Saul and his men, they're on their way to Damascus to persecute Christians. Bright light flashed around them, and the voice of Jesus spoke to Saul, saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, to be honest, this is one time we might be tempted to question Jesus' methods. I mean, when Saul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he did not meet the gentle, humble carpenter and rabbi, God in the flesh, Jesus. No, on the road to Damascus, Saul met the Lord Jesus Christ, awesome in power, awesome in glory, and awesome in authority. He met Jesus, the final judge over humanity. He met the Almighty. He met the Alpha, the Omega, the Amen. And that's just the A's. Hey, I could go on all the way through the alphabet, all the way to Wonderful Counselor. And I can assure you that if I had been the Lord Jesus, I wouldn't have bothered asking Saul any questions. I would have simply said, stop it! No, no. Or I might have even said, stop it, you fool! Or I might have just smote him. <laughs> smote! That's an old English word meaning a heavy blow with a weapon or your hand. Smote. What I'm saying is, Jesus didn't have to show any grace at all to Saul. And just think what this tells us about Christ's character that he would show this much grace to a man who was his enemy. I mean, Jesus could easily have used his divine power, his authority to stop Saul. Instead, what he used to change Saul's life was grace and truth. And throughout the centuries and all over the world, Billions of people have learned about the grace and truth of Jesus Christ because of this one changed life, that of Saul, whom we know as St. Paul. So maybe Jesus' methods actually do make sense. It's absolutely incredible. But he redeemed the situation 
with one simple question. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? If you'll allow me this morning, I'd like to suggest three questions to ask ourselves after reading today's scripture. Okay? And the first one is, what kind of God do you believe God is? There's a preacher some of you may be familiar with who's gained some attention online in the past couple of years. By doing what we spoke about last Sunday, he has decided that he's going to be a bouncer for God. I just watched a video of him yesterday where he was in the pulpit. And I quote, here's what he said, You cannot be a Democrat and a Christian. I don't care how mad that makes you. If you disagree, just get out. Get out in the name of Jesus. Unquote. Wow. This guy's mission (laughs) sounds as messed up as Saul's mission had become. And let's not forget now, Paul, excuse me, Saul's primary motivation for persecuting Christians was not, was not hatred. It was not destruction. His primary motivation for hunting down and arresting and sometimes murdering the followers of Jesus was his honest desire to serve God. That's scary, isn't it? He was serving God, whose very nature is love, and he was doing it by killing innocent people. So without a doubt, Saul needed a confrontation on the road to Damascus. He needed to confront his entire approach to life. He needed to recognize that any mission that doesn't line up with the heart of Jesus is not from God. Hear me today, friends. The most noble of intentions can wind up with the most tragic results if your mission is divorced from the heart of Jesus. And rather than drawing people to God, that kind of mission will drive people away from God. Are you able to see that? For you see, Saul thought his faith was in God, but it wasn't. Saul's faith was in his misunderstanding of the kind of God God is. Saul served the law, not the Lord. And we Christians can be just as short-sighted and just as destructive if we don't intentionally and consistently align our hearts and lives with the heart of Jesus. 
I like what one pastor wrote on this subject. He said, you know, there's something comfortable about reducing Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts. You always know where you stand. And this helps reduce anxiety. The advantage is <laughs> you don't need wisdom. You don't have to think deeply, don't have to make hard choices, and it's not necessary to relate personally to a demanding and loving Lord. If you're a fan of the Simpsons cartoon, <laughs> then you know that Homer and Marge Simpson's next-door neighbors are the ultra-religious Flanders family. Interestingly, the one and only episode I ever watched of this show was one in which Homer asks those religious neighbors where they've been. And Ned Flanders answers. He says, we went away to a Christian camp. We were learning how to be more judgmental. Now, that may be funny, but it's also sad because it's true. Too many Christians are passionate about the laws of God, but completely miss the love of God. And therefore, if we truly desire to honor God, then the first question we must ask ourselves is, what kind of God do I believe God is? And then the second question we should ask is, who is Jesus, and how does he expect his followers to live? And I think the only way to answer this question and, and truly understand our own identity and our own purpose is to understand the character and will of God. And the best way to understand the character and will of God is to look to Jesus, who is God in the flesh. And when we look at Jesus, do we see a condemning, punishing God? No. We see a man who ate with sinners. A man who welcomed outsiders, who loved the least, the last, the lost, and the lonely. So, am I describing your life? Do your actions reflect the priorities and the values and the character of Christ? There's a well-known quote that says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Ouch. And by the way, this is not just a clever saying. The desire to create God in our own image is a real, real danger for Christians. Listen, it's so easy to take Bible passages out of context and assume God hates the same people, that God hates the same issues that we hate. And it becomes really easy to believe that our anger honors God. It doesn't. 
James 1, 19 and 20 reads this way. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. We need to think about that real, real hard before we lash out at anybody in Jesus' name. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. There's a true story of a young woman named Catherine Thacker that I think is an excellent example of someone who moved past anger to find God-given purpose in life. You see, Catherine was only 18 months old when her father, a Kentucky police officer, was shot and killed in the line of duty. And while growing up, Catherine harbored hatred and anger toward her father's killer. She even wrote him long letters expressing her hurt and her anger and her hatred. But then when Catherine became a teenager, she realized that her hate was destroying her. And later, in an interview on the 700 Club, Catherine said she finally realized that if she continued to let her anger consume her, she was going to miss out on what life held for her. And that realization was the beginning of a change in her life. And it wasn't long afterwards when Catherine attended a local Christian camp where she prayed to become a follower of Jesus. And then as Catherine learned more about God, she became more convinced that her anger toward her father's killer was, in her own words, locking out parts of my heart that God could easily fill up. And so do you know what she did? She began to pray for healing from her anger, and she also began praying for her dad's killer. And the result was, not only was Catherine able to forgive the man, as she said, my prayer went from, oh, I hope these bad things happen to him, to I hope he knows Jesus, and I hope that he can experience forgiveness too, because he's a sinful human being, and so am I. Man, she had every right to be angry with her father's killer, but she found that the anger was driving her further and further from God, further from God's purposes for her life. And it was only when she started pursuing the mind and character of Jesus that she overcame her anger, discovered a new mission in life. So the first two questions that will lead us closer to God and to God's purposes for our life are, what kind of God do you believe God is? And number two, who is Jesus and how does he expect his followers to live? And the final question we should ask from this scripture lesson is, Lord, what do you want me to do? See, our Bible passage for this morning ends with a new challenge for Saul. After he has been struck blind, he's been knocked to the ground, he's been confronted by the voice of Jesus, he is then told, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. In other words, friends, now that you know that Jesus is the Lord, the only logical thing to do 
is whatever he wants you to do. Amen? Now, during our service this morning, we're going to recognize two young ladies who are graduating from high school this month. But before we do that, I'd like for us to read one more story in the book of Acts, this time from the ninth chapter. It's about a remarkable disciple of Jesus Christ named Tabitha. And our story begins in verse 36, where it says, In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. Someone once said that a truly great life can be summed up in just a few words. Well, this is our introduction to Tabitha. She was always doing good and helping the poor. What a wonderful epitaph. Sadly, however, Tabitha became sick and died, evidently before her time. And the other believers in Joppa were so upset about her death that they sent for Simon Peter to come to them from a nearby town. And as you may recall, after Jesus' death, Peter became the leader of the 12 apostles. Well, when Peter got to Tabitha's house, he was taken upstairs to the room where they had laid her body, and among the mourners in the upper room were, was a group of widows. And in those days, you see, widows and orphans were the neediest members of society. They were completely, totally dependent on the compassion of others. Without help, many widows had to turn to begging or even prostitution in order to survive. Anyway, these women were distraught. It says in Acts 9, 39, all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Tabitha had made while she was still with them. See, evidently, Tabitha cared deeply about the widows' needs and had shown compassion by sewing clothing for them. See, Tabitha saw a practical need, and she filled it. And therefore, these women, they weren't just showing Peter the clothes that Tabitha made. They were showing him the love that Tabitha had for them. And so having listened to the women tell what kind of woman Tabitha was, Peter then sent them out of the room, and he knelt beside the bed. And he prayed for Tabitha. And then he simply told her to get up. And Tabitha, whose body had already been prepared for burial, opened her eyes and sat up. Whoa, surprise. And it says in verse 31, Peter then called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Now, I'll bet that many of you didn't know or had forgotten that Peter, by the power of God, raised Tabitha from the dead. What a remarkable, remarkable story this is. And what a remarkable woman Tabitha must have been. I mean, she was so loved and respected by her church family that she was brought back from the dead 
to continue her ministry with them. And what I hope that all of us will see today is this. Living like Tabitha lived. Living with love and compassion for others, which, by the way, is the way Christ lived. That is the only fulfilling way to live. Listen, the key to living your best life is compassion. Tabitha, a disciple of Jesus, cared for others. She understood God had given her particular skills and resources that she could use for good works. She had the skill of sowing that she could use for the poor and the widows. And I challenge you, I challenge you to take some time this week to examine the skills and resources God has given you. And then ask yourself, how you can use these things to meet the needs of people God places in your life. What I'm saying is this, the key to a fulfilling life is to translate compassion into action. Jesus' ministry did not consist of simply telling hurting people, hey, I'll pray for you. Now, there's nothing wrong with telling people you'll pray for them. That can be very helpful if you really mean it and if you really follow through with doing it. But there are some people who tell others they'll pray for them who simply use that as a substitute for doing anything else to helping the person in need. Have you ever done it? Sure you have. But that wasn't Jesus' way. Jesus never told anyone to go to church and find the answers for their needs. Instead, he went to them. He went to the marketplaces. He went to the people's homes. He preached to the crowds on the countryside. He went where the needs were. And he took action to heal the hurts right in front of him. You know, it always thrills me when young people find creative ways to live out their compassion. Uh, For example, we're told that in the recent COVID-19 lockdown, reports of domestic violence rose all over the world. Of course, most of us feel genuine sympathy for victims of domestic violence, but not many of us take any action to improve the situation. However, a Polish high school student named Christina used her skills and resources to get help for people in a dangerous home situation. Maybe you've heard about it. Christina set up a fake online cosmetic store. And here's how the fake site worked. A woman shopping on this site could make a request for help without her partner knowing it. If a woman places her order and types in an address, that's a sign that she needs a visit from local authorities. And get this, since the website's launch, 
This creative site has provided help for 350 women, some teenagers. Wow. Now, most of us aren't creative enough to come up with something that effective with helping people with a specific need. But often, if we look hard enough, we can find some concrete deed we can do to reach out and show someone the love of Christ. Tabitha, this truly caring woman, lived a fulfilling life. She had a sense of purpose for her life. She translated her compassion into action. And because of the life she lived, she will live forever. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that because Peter raised her from the dead that she lived forever. Tabitha did eventually die. But think of it. Here we are in the year 2022 talking about this woman who lived over 2,000 years ago. Why? Because of the caring life she lived. What a legacy Tabitha left us. And as long as people tell the gospel story, Tabitha will not be forgotten. That's the power of a positive influence. It never dies. So, how does that describe your life right now? How will people describe you after you're gone. I want to encourage you this morning. You and I were made to reflect Jesus to the world. We need to align our life and our mission with him. Because when our mission is aligned with the heart of Jesus, we will, like Paul, put aside our anger and our condemnation, and replace it with compassion. And when we translate our compassion into action the way Tabitha did, and commit to living a life with a sense of purpose, our lives will literally have an eternal impact for the glory of God. Lord, I pray that you will use this message to motivate each of us to be your voice, your hands, and your feet. That others may encounter you as we translate our compassion into action. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.